Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I sometimes tell my students, my science students, that it's not difficult for me to imagine my life without science, even though I've invested a lot of it in science so far. But it's not possible for me to imagine my life without music, because that's been there from the beginning. When I sing, I'm calling on a whole different suite of faculties and stimuli and skills and attentions that uh, I don't often deploy in my science and vice versa. And so by doing one, I get a break and I get a rest and recovery from the other one. And, um, and that really motivates me and keeps me going to keep them both in my life. That's Cassandra Extavour, one of the most remarkable people I've talked to on Clear and Vivid. She's a distinguished professor of biology at Harvard, where she's made striking discoveries in how genes make the cells needed for sexual reproduction. She's African-American, which is still an unconscionable rarity in the upper echelons of science. And even more rare, she's also a professional singer with a gorgeous soprano voice that we'll be hearing later. This is so great to have you on because your work is fascinating, and you're fascinating as a person, I think. Because you're not only a top scientist, you're also in the arts, and not just as someone who loves music, but as a professional. I think it's amazing. It's an example of what we're capable of if we're able to follow our own path, you know? And not everybody follows the path that interests them. What about the science part? Did you have a moment where you said, ah, oh, this is for me? Did it gradually develop? How did, when were you aware that you were going to be a scientist? I became interested in science as a teenager without really understanding that what I was becoming interested in was science. Um, what did you think it was? I thought it was just sort of curiosity, like, how does that work? And it was curiosity largely about people and people's behavior, human behavior, the choices that they made um, in terms of how to treat each other, which often wasn't good. And I yeah. did wonder, how does that work? How do decisions get made? People think that they make their own decisions based on some kind of free will. But what is that, really? Does it have a physical basis? Is that physical basis the brain? And if so, how does the brain work? And then I realized that in order to study that at a post-secondary level, I was going to need some kind of biology background. And so that's what got me on the track to doing an undergraduate degree in biology. And then somehow you got from 
that interest in human decision-making to something at least as complex, if not more so, in the development of along the way of, of all, all complicated life. Yes, that's right. And in a way, it was still an interest in decision-making, but it was an interest in uh, sort of a very simplified form of decision-making, which was cellular decision-making on the basis of gene sequences. So I was interested in how specific sequences of DNA uh, could make cells do different things. Can you explain to me what work you did on the gene called Oscar. I love that Oscar has a name. How did it get its name, by the way? Right. So um, the the Oscar gene was first discovered in the fruit fly Drosophila melanogaster, and it was um, discovered in a, what we call a genetic screen, which is a kind of a throw a dart at the genome, and whatever the dart sticks in, you presume you've broken it. And by what ends up being wrong with the fly, you deduce that the thing you broke must be important for that thing. So instead of oh, darts, that's great! What a great way to describe it. That's <laughs> yeah, that's that's forward genetics. That's a forward genetic screen. And so instead of dart, we're throwing chemicals, mutagens, things that are yeah. carcinogens that you would not want to eat normally because they cause damage to your DNA. Well, we give those on purpose to the fly, or we might give the fly radiation, which again, we're staying away from the sun. We're having sunscreen because we don't want our DNA to be broken by those by those rays, but we can irradiate organisms on purpose to break their DNA on purpose. Not a ton, not so much that you kill the organism because then you're not going to learn anything, but just to make a tiny break in the DNA. And then you observe the organism and you say, is there anything different about this organism? Anything missing? Anything wrong? And if there is, then you test the hypothesis that the piece of DNA that you broke is responsible for making that thing work correctly. And so... Um, Forward genetics really took off in animals and in the fruit fly, specifically in Drosophila melanogaster at the end of the 70s, the beginning of the 80s in North America and in Europe. And uh, in particular, in Germany, two scientists, Christiana nusslein fullhart and Eric Wieschaus, conducted what has become uh, a very famous genetic screen in this fruit fly because it uncovered just dozens and dozens of genes that are responsible for making sure that the fly has all the basic correct Parts. We're talking sort of front and back, head and tail, um, you know, belly and back. That really basic um, blueprint information about how to construct the body. And one and many of the genes that they pulled out, they recognized that these genes must be important for such information because when the genes were broken, entire parts of the body was missing. Like there was only a head mm. but no tail, or there's only a tail mm. but no head. And there were a series of genes that, when broken, didn't cause the animal to have any defects, but the children of that animal were sterile. And so these were the so-called grandchildless mutants. The organism was fine, mm. their offspring seemed fine, but their offspring were sterile. And so a series of these mutations were named after various European royal families that had gone extinct because of lack of children in the birth line. And Oscar was one of those. What did you do with Oscar that was so groundbreaking? Well, I think we contributed two main things that were big surprises about Oscar. Um, one was just how old Oscar is, and the other one is where Oscar came from. So how old is Oscar? So it was first discovered, this gene, in this fruit fly. And for decades after that, 
The only other organisms that anyone could identify a copy of Oscar in were other insects really closely related to fruit flies, other flies, mosquitoes. So for just decades, we thought that Oscar was really only present in sort of a pretty small number of insects that it evolved about 300 million years ago, which is when that group of insects evolved. That wasn't recently, but still it's not as old as all animals, for example. And that it was really restricted to this group of insects. And importantly, that the only job that Oscar had really was to make sure that the germline got established. The germline are cells that make eggs and sperm. That's how come if Oscar's missing, you end up with sterile animals because they're fine otherwise, but they're not uh, making eggs uh. and sperm. So, so there's not going to be any sexual reproduction exactly. if Oscar is missing. And Okay, so go, yeah. on, go ahead. Go ahead. What's the rest of the story? Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think the first contribution that we made about this gene that was surprising is that we found Oscar in a cricket. Now, a cricket is pretty distantly related from the flies and mosquitoes and wasps and so on. And it belongs to a group of insects that are pretty far away from the insects that we thought Oscar was confined to. So this immediately told us that Oscar had to be 50, maybe 100 million years even older than we thought. And the other thing that was surprising is that when we took away this gene from the cricket, we mutated it in the cricket, instead of having a sexual reproduction issue because they weren't making eggs and sperm, actually they made eggs and sperm just fine. They didn't need this gene for their sexual reproduction. Instead, they were using this gene in their nervous system in the neurons of the embryo, and in the brain of the adult. Huh. Yep. And so this was uh, an example that was really unexpected for Oscar because its only known role was in the germline to, to that point. This was an, an example of a gene that just doesn't do the same thing everywhere. In some organisms it has one job, but in other organisms it might be doing a totally different job. So that was, um, that was our first... I think, surprising contribution to understanding how this gene works. And then the second one that we just published earlier this year has to do with, well, where did Oscar come from? So when we think about where genes come from, you know, they don't just drop out of the sky into genomes. They come from somewhere. And, you know, genes come from the same places that other stuff comes from. You either make a copy of something that's already existing and maybe you change it a little bit, or I guess you could make something from scratch, like ground up, just take all the basic ingredients and sew them together. But that way, the from scratch way, is much less common in animals than the, let me just make a copy of something that already exists, I'll change it a little bit, and now I'll have something slightly new. All animals descended from a last common ancestor around 550 million years ago, and more or less, we all kind of have the same genes, all animals. And they're just kind of variations, you know, dog genes are just slight variations on human genes, and there's slight variations on fly genes. So the weird thing about Oscar is that we searched and searched and searched in all the genomes of all the animals, and we even went outside animals and searched in plant genomes and bacterial genomes, and we just couldn't find any other gene that looked anything like Oscar. There was just nothing like it. It just looked like a unique uh, a unique gene that just didn't have a structure like any other gene that we could find. So then we thought, okay, what if we stop looking for uh, other genes that look like Oscar across the whole sequence? What if we just look at pieces of Oscar and see if we can find sequences from other organisms that look mm -hmm. at least like a little piece of Oscar? That's yeah, great. And that's when we found something really surprising to us, which was that there were two different pieces of Oscar of its sequence that have really different resemblances to different groups of organisms. There's one piece of Oscar that looks like a pretty standard piece of animal DNA. 
And there's different ways that you can recognize, is this probably a piece of animal DNA or a plant DNA or a viral DNA and so on. So piece of part of Oscar looks pretty animal-like, pretty standard. But the other part doesn't look anything like any animal sequence. It looks like a bacterial sequence. And we did a whole bunch of different types of statistical tests to compare sequences that phylogeneticists have developed over the years. And with almost every test that we gave it, we came to the same conclusion, which is that Oscar is this weird fusion gene. It's a chimeric gene. A piece of an animal genome and a piece of a bacterial genome got sewn together something like 500 million years ago to create a gene that has overall a structure that's unlike any gene from any other organism because it's a fusion, it's a chimera. And so that was a recent contribution that we made to understanding where Oscar came from in the first place. That sounds like an extraordinary event 500 million years ago. Right. Where a, a contribution from a bacterium mm-hmm. mixes with with what? What, what's, what did it mix with? Um, with? Of some ancient piece of insect DNA, we think. How did that happen? Did the, did the bacteria, uh, did the bacterium swallow the insect or something? Or so how did, how did, did it couldn't mate with it? Right. How did the DNA mix? Exactly. It's such a great question. So when we find genes like this that look like they're just from completely different domains of life, and as you said, we pretty, we feel pretty confident that they didn't mate. So then it, if you're not mating with someone, if you don't get DNA from your parents, then where can you possibly get DNA from? Well, it turns out that there are other ways of getting DNA besides inheriting DNA from parents. And the way that we think might have contributed to making Oscar is a way called horizontal transfer, horizontal gene transfer. Horizontal transfer sounds like regular sexual reproduction to me. What, I see. That's interesting. So with <laughs> sexual reproduction, we, Wait, us- what is it? we usually call that vertical transfer. I think it's because we tend to draw like family trees, like we draw some parents at the top and then we draw some children underneath and then some grandchildren underneath. So we talk about vertical transmission of DNA from generation to generation through sexual reproduction. Well, what's horizontal transfer? Horizontal transfer is getting DNA from an organism you didn't mate with that's not your ancestor and you're not its descendant. So imagine you ate a salad for lunch and some of the lettuce DNA somehow got into your genome. You didn't mate with that lettuce. But you came close to it, you came really close to it, and somehow that closeness gave you a little bit of its DNA. That's horizontal gene transfer. You got some of its DNA, but sounds, you didn't make sounds it. Like, sounds like one of the, the lettuce or I would need some kind of an agent to make that possible. Absolutely right. And so it's interesting because we know of at least a couple different agents, which are like transfer agents, they're like couriers, that actually have the capability of transferring DNA back and forth between cells or between genomes. One of them is viruses. Mm. Viruses, Mm. often, there are some types of viruses that can pick up a little bit of DNA from a genome that they're in and then take that DNA with them when they leave the cell and deposit that DNA into another cell that they might enter later on. And we don't know for sure uh, if a virus was involved in transferring some bacterial DNA into an ancient insect genome to create the fusion gene that then became Oscar. We don't know that. We don't have any evidence for or against that. But that's one mechanism of horizontal gene transfer that we do know can exist. And so what we hypothesize is uh, that there might have been bacteria inside the germ cells. These are the cells that make eggs and sperm. Inside the germ cells of an ancient insect ancestor before Oscar evolved. And that that bacterium living inside the very cell whose DNA was going to be passed on to the next generation 
a little bit of that bacterial genome might have snuck into the nucleus of that insect germ cell and become fused with that insect genome. Now, I understand, or I've heard, that this is a turning point in going from single-cell organisms to multi-celled organisms. Mm. Is that right? And what? And if it's right, what does that mean? What was life like before this thing that helped Oscar come, come into existence? Mm. The argument goes like this. Before there were multicellular life forms, like animals or plants, there were single-celled life forms. And so there was some kind of transition in evolution, and this transition happened many times, from single-celled life to multicellular life. Now, how does a single cell reproduce? Well, it just divides. It's very easy. You divide. You are your own parent. You, are, you produce your own offspring. Your DNA makes it to the next generation because you just divide it. Now, what if you are a multicellular organism, right? And remember that part of the premise of evolution by natural selection is that there is a sort of a survival of the fittest. And the fittest basically means how many copies of your DNA can you put into the next generation? How much offspring can you have? If you're a single cell, well, you're in charge of that all by yourself. You just divide as many times as you can. Now, let's say you're a single cell, but inside a multicellular organism, like one cell in my finger or one cell in my forehead. That cell's DNA is not literally going to make it into the next generation because that cell's not going to make eggs or sperm. So then the question becomes, well, what's the motivation for the cells in my finger to stick together and make a finger. Why don't they just split off and live their own single-celled life and have their own offspring without being related but distantly related to the sperm and egg cells of the human body because it's their DNA that's really going to make it into the next generation. In other- so what makes them stick together? So What's the incentive? The incentive is proposed to be um, uh, sort of delivered by the germline. If the germline dissects this egg and sperm cells sort of take on that job of passing the DNA on to the next generation. Then the other cells, which collectively we call the somatic cells, so a somatic cell is any cell that's not an egg cell or a sperm cell, the somatic cells now are kind of freed up to do a lot of different types of functions that single-celled organisms just can't achieve, like making hands with bones and muscles that can grasp things, that can build things, like making internal organ systems that can... uh, live with a much greater variety of environmental conditions, like making wings on animals to occupy aerial habitats, um, like making aquatic breathing systems to occupy aquatic habitats. So the idea is that the huge diversification of multicellular life forms, which on many, uh, in many ways is sort of more diverse and more complex in some ways than single-celled life, that was made possible by giving the special job of passing on the DNA just to one group of cells, and then the rest of the cells now are free to evolve all this different diversity of life forms. That's how the theory goes. And so in that sense, Oscar is critical to the function of the germline and the evolution of the germline in animals, and the germline in turn is critical to the evolution of multicellular life. It sounds to me like you pointed your finger at a moment in the history of life that was kind of critical where we where we could go from single cell organisms to multi cell organisms mm-hmm. and that gave rise to the possibility of us mm-hmm. that's that's a that's a big point in history it's pretty important it's pretty important now let me clarify that oscar 
as interesting as it is, and I've said that it's absolutely critical for making the germ cells, the egg and sperm cells in many insects. But I also mentioned that it's not important for making those cells in the cricket, for example. And it turns out that animals that aren't insects, they don't have an Oscar gene. They have other genes that make sure that they get germ cells. And so even though the existence of a cell that is a germ cell, that's the sexual reproduction cell, is critical and is absolutely required and present in every animal, the way that different animals make sure that they end up with some germ cells turns out to vary a lot. So this is what's so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. You've, you've had me enraptured hearing your understanding of this immensely complex subject. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I've been enraptured by your voice through your professional love of music. You, do you mind if we play a little bit of you singing Bach? Not at all. That's also you. And I want to talk to you about your musical life when we come back after our break. As promised, when we return from the break, Cassandra Extevor tells me how she juggles her two lives as scientist and singer, and how each benefits from the other. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on our virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer, Graham Chet, and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free, but you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Aldous Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night, student by day, nurse by night. 
Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Cassandra Extivore. So I'd love to hear how you developed a musical career and a scientific career, and both of them notable. How did you do it in one lifetime? Well, um, I think a big motivation for me was that I, I love them both. Um, music was definitely my first love. I came to science later in life, almost at the end of high school. And I always thought I would be a musician. Music was one of the things I did, you know, practically as a toddler, in large part thanks to my father, who was a musician. He was a percussionist and very much encouraged me and my siblings to play music, to perform with him. He performed regularly. And so I grew very comfortable with performing and uh, grew to feel that playing and learning music was really an important part of my life, that it was an important part of my self-concept. In fact, I sometimes tell my students, my science students, that it's not difficult for me to imagine my life without science, even though I've invested a lot of it in science so far. But it's not possible for me to imagine my life without music, because that's been there from the beginning. And I think what ended up happening was that I had a solid, pretty consistent dream of being a professional musician through till the end of high school. And it was at that time that I discovered that I really liked science and wanted to learn more about biology and genetics. But I didn't want to close the door on music. I didn't want to not have the option of being a musician. And so I always chose ways to do science that would still allow me to do music. And so, for example, when I was an undergraduate student, I decided to, I thought that it would be easier to study science full-time for my major in university, but to continue to play and to sing um, not full-time, but part-time. And in that way, I thought I could continue to do both. And that worked out fairly well as an undergraduate student. I began to sing professionally at that time. And then when I came to the end of my undergraduate studies, I was even more interested in biology and in genetics than I had been when I started. And I had realized that graduate school was an option. Doing a PhD was an option. And so I applied to graduate studies and was accepted to a program I was interested in to study developmental genetics. But also, once I got there and began my studies in genetics, looked around for 
voice teachers, for places to sing, for professional opportunities to keep those things open at the same time. So I'm a very self-motivated person. So I worked very hard in the lab evenings and weekends. And then if I needed to go on tour for a few days or I needed to leave early for a rehearsal, I would just do it. Wow. Wow. To be able to do two such difficult things at the same time. Yeah, it definitely, it takes some planning. Um, It takes some forethought. And it also means sacrificing other things. I'm not someone who's ever used to having a lot of downtime. But doing these two activities uh, very intensely, one of them is the downtime from the other one. So when I sing, I'm calling on a whole different suite of um, faculties and stimuli and skills and attentions that uh, I don't often deploy in my science and vice versa. And so by doing one, I get a break and I get a rest and recovery from the other one. And, um, and that really motivates me and keeps me going to keep them both in my life. Do you see any similarities in, between the work you do in the lab, the, work, the thing you're working on, the complexity of that world, and the, the, the demands of music? Absolutely. Many, many similarities. One similarity is sort of a practical similarity as a practitioner of science or a practitioner of music is that there's a lot of solitary work that has to go in. You have to memorize all the structures of the amino acids. Nobody can do that for you. At some point, you just have to sit down by yourself and get it into your head somehow. Same thing with the muscle memory that is producing the voice in your body, with understanding the harmonic relations of the music that you're studying. Nobody can just inject that information into your brain or into your sort of spirit to sing it. You need to do the homework on your own, but then you get together with other people to make the music, to make the discoveries. And getting together with other people, there's nothing more complicated and nothing more fascinating than that. Trying to understand another person, trying to understand what they want to communicate, what their motivation is, how it relates to yours, and to bring that together, whether it's in an opera or in a lab team, there's nothing more fascinating than that because it's the ultimate complexity of systems. So in those ways, I find them very similar. You know, in talking about how people get along, how they organize themselves, how they work together, you you make me wonder what it's like, what it's been like for you as a woman in science. What's the path been like for you? Um, it's been, um, it's, it's not been easy uh, all the time. Uh, it's a very male-dominated profession. I know women, not only of generations that preceded mine, but of my generation and of younger than me, who are regularly told point blank that they don't belong in science because their priorities should be elsewhere or their talents should lie elsewhere or there's simply not room for them because science needs to be done a certain particular type of way. And, uh, and so I've definitely encountered this from from the beginning and it's a consistent it's a consistent element of doing science uh, as a woman today you're in a position to experience a double whammy because you're not only a woman you're a woman of color mm-hmm. in science has that been an extra burden i assume it has absolutely absolutely uh even more than excluding women from uh western academic science people of color 
Black people have been excluded as well actively, and that is something that continues today. Um, there's, a, you know, the buzzwords these days, people don't like to say racism or racist anymore, at least in the circles that I move in. People find that very, very scary to talk about. Um, and they would like to think that there is no more racism because certain types of overt signs or laws might not be in practice anymore. Um, so they prefer to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, which feels more accessible, doesn't contain the word race or black, which people feel very uncomfortable with. And so, um, so that's where the conversation is these days. And uh, there still, though, isn't really a big understanding of the fact that just because you can generate a non-homogeneous graduate class or faculty group or staff group, that doesn't mean that everyone who is there has an equal access to decision making, has equal access to power, or has equal access simply to participate in, in the enterprise. And so... Um, so it's absolutely the case that these these aspects of my identity interact with each other, they intersect with each other, and uh, there are ways in which, for example, in many aspects, in many fields of the biological sciences, including developmental biology and developmental genetics, which is one of the fields that I was trained in and that we work in, there happen to be actually quite a number of women, senior women, in the field of developmental genetics and developmental biology, and there have been for a few decades. And so there can be a perception that because we can have close to 50% or sometimes 50% representation of women, that there are no other problems. And very often when people talk about diversifying the faculty, they really mean bringing in more women, and they usually mean bringing in more white women. And they may not mean that specifically, but unconsciously, when one looks at the outcome of the efforts that have been made, that's effectively what has happened. And I'm not at all saying that that's not important. It's critically important, but that's not where things end. And so absolutely it's the case that uh, for all of us, we are all parts of many communities and many identities. And where those things intersect uh, are where we can often struggle, where one aspect of our experience may be being addressed, but not another aspect. So it's a challenge. When we see that there is such a high percentage of female students and then a lot lower percentage of people in administration mm -hmm. or heading labs, mm -hmm. there's something falling off the cliffs there. Mm -hmm. what, what, are, what are the steps and practices that make that divergence? You know, there are a lot of different factors that contribute and one of the things that it's um, easy for us to forget, or that I find it very useful to remember, is that the longer we stay in inhospitable environments, the more stressful it is. A young undergraduate woman in sciences may have been a little bit dismissed by her science teachers in secondary school, but she made it here. And if she's studying biological sciences at a North American university, and she's in an undergraduate degree, probably half her classmates are women. And they will get comments from some of the professors and uh, lowered expectations of some of their colleagues and left out of certain discussions when boys may get together and have study groups. And, but they may get through this anyway. And then a third or a quarter of them will make up their PhD classes if they decide to do that, let's say. So it's, you know, it's not in the single digit percentage, but there are less. But those women who have now progressed on to graduate school they haven't forgotten all of the tiny, sometimes larger than tiny, 
slights or dismissals or lowered expectations or suggestions that they look for something else or suggestions that their interest in science really isn't compatible with other things that they might be interested in. They may, they haven't forgotten those things. Those things haven't disappeared. Accumulating on top of that set of scar tissue, now will come the next round of injustices in what is now a much less representative environment, that of graduate school. And if they still decide to stay in research and they go on and do postdoctoral work or they go into the pharmaceutical industry or in any of the other places where people practice science, there will almost certainly be even fewer women now, which means that there will be even more of the overlooking and the slightly left out and the lack of representation. And it, when you are a smaller and smaller minority, you are more and more in the spotlight and you are more and more taken as a representation of everything that people think that your identities embody. And so what you say feels more fraught. It feels more risky because when you were one of 50% of women in the room, maybe when you said something, people weren't going to associate every other woman in the room with what you said or vice versa. But when you now become the only woman in a room of 30, you now somehow have become the representative for women. And you know that you have this burden, not just of speaking for yourself, but you know that you're very likely to color the views of everyone else in the room about the next woman who walks into the room. So now you have a greater responsibility to protect that space, to make sure that you look good, to make sure that you're bulletproof, because anything bad that can be said about you will now automatically be attributed to all women or all Black people or whatever it is. And so these injustices and these exclusions, they build up over time and they make it more and more difficult. It requires more and more energy to keep going. And I think that this fatigue is one of the things that many women just get tired of it. They just don't want to deal with it. And they know correctly that they have a lot of other interesting options ahead of them. And so I think that's, that's one of the things that certainly I know can contribute to attrition of women and other historically excluded groups of people in the sciences over time. Thank you for that. That's a very vivid picture of life on the front lines. I'm, I, I, appreciate your, I appreciate your telling us that. Mm -hmm. Before we go, I have to ask you about the flag behind you. <laughs> it's green, yellow, and orange, and it has lettering that I can't read. What, what is that? Right. It's actually a pride flag, and I just hung it up because I have a stack of unsightly boxes behind me in this room, and I didn't think it looked right. Oh. So I just found this flag that was sitting on a chair, and it's a pride flag that I bought when I lived in Madrid. And what it says um, on the letter, it says Chueca which is the name of a neighborhood in Madrid, which certainly at the time I lived there was the hub of the downtown gay neighborhood. So I spent a lot of time there, uh, and I bought this flag there one time. Um, and I guess I had it folded up on a chair waiting to hide my unsightly boxes here for you. It's funny. I have a flag from Chile when I was there having an emergency operation wow. in, in the middle of the night. So I, I have a special association with Chile just the same way you do with that flag. Wow. So we, our time is, has drawn to a close, but we always end our show with seven quick questions okay. that invite seven quick answers. Okay. And it's sort of about communicating. Number one, what do you wish you really understood? I wish I really understood 
what the evolution of the first animal looked like. What it looked like? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay, number two. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I tell them, I don't think that's correct. Here is a source of information that I think contains the correct information. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? I've been asked many times, what are you? <laughs> and you said, I'm a multicellular organism. Uh, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> how, do you, how do you answer that? Yeah, I say, what are you asking me? Yeah, right. And then that exactly. forces them to say what they mean is, where are my parents from or where was I born? Uh, yeah. 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 What, what are you? Not? Yeah. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? I wait for a break in their flow. I make a visual signal to see if they can see me. <laughs> and I say, I love the point that you're making. And I'd like to take a pause in that because I think we have another point that needs to be made. And then I ask someone else to speak. Oh, that's really nice. You have a policy all worked out. That's great. Let's say you're at a dinner table yeah. and you're having a conversation with someone next to you. You haven't yet started a conversation. Mm. You don't know this person. Mm -hmm. How do you start up a true conversation with that person? I will ask them, uh, I'll ask them about something that they've said that they do, maybe their profession or a hobby. And I'll ask them if they like it. And then whether, no matter what they say, I'll ask them why. If they say, I do like it, I'll say, what is it that you like about it that makes it different from this other thing? Uh, or if they say they don't like it, that's interesting. What don't you like about it? Yeah. Okay, number six. What gives you confidence? Knowing that my family would love and value me no matter what my profession was no matter what I spent my time doing. Last question. What book changed your life? An anthology of writings by women of color called This Bridge Called My Back. The title was what? The title is This Bridge Called My Back. Huh. Well, what does that mean? Um, it's a, a series of uh, essays by women of color explaining how, in different ways, the societies that they exist within, that they are marginalized within, despite marginalizing them and holding them outside of access to power within those societies, expect and rely on their labor and their contribution and their insight to keep uh, society uh, going. I see. You should be in that book. That's great. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been a terrific conversation. Oh, I really enjoyed this. Wonderful. Thanks for everything you do. Thank you, Alan. Pleasure to talk to you. It was for me, Cassandra. Thank you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid, up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. 
We're very grateful. Cassandra Extabor is a professor of biology at Harvard University, where the lab she runs focuses on the genes, including Oscar, of course, that control the evolution and development of the cells involved in reproduction. Her lab webpage is extavorlab.com, and you can find her music and a list of her upcoming performances at cassandraextavormusic.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Liev Schreiber. Liev and I shared the stage on Broadway a few years ago in a very exciting production of Glen Gary, Glen Ross, in which Liev played Ricky Roma. And we shared some interesting memories from that show, both happy and weird. Do you remember that time where I enter in the second act and I have, as Roma, I have a string of six expletives? They're all the same. They begin with F and they end with K. And I have to say it six times in a row. And I got through three of them. And then some guy from the third row goes, language? And I thought, I I couldn't believe it. I said, oh, geez, I'm in trouble. I got three more fucks. (laughs) But those are the, I love those events. I mean, that that for me is, is, it's what I miss more than anything right now is, and I think not just from the pandemic, but from being from doing television and film for so long, I really miss audiences. Lieb Schreiber, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>